Folks, we're back into our series on Nehemiah. <laughs> so we're back into, we're looking at exiles and ambassadors. And we've been doing that for a little while now. We took a break for the season of Lent and for Easter, and now we're back into it. And with why we're looking at Nehemiah, we're looking at what it is to be an exile in that there's periods in there's periods of history, particularly in the Old Testament, where God's people are taken from their place, from their homeland, which is Israel or um, Jerusalem, their, the holy city, and they're taken hundreds of miles to Babylon into a period in the, a dark period in many ways called exile, as in. They're no longer at home. They don't have their comforts of home. They don't have the language of home. They don't have the culture of home. They don't have their religious practices of home. They don't have their history of home. They're just in a place that is alien to them. And in some senses, that captures what it is to be human. That all of us, in some senses, are trying to find our way home. And that's instinctive because we are created for another place. We have been designed for a purpose. And so when we're not in that purpose, when we're not in that place, there's always going to be a slight ache in the heart, which is this doesn't feel like home. And one of the heart cries of the exiles is they just long to get home. And so that's why we're in this book of Nehemiah, because we're about reading about a man who rebuilds the walls of Jerusalem, who rebuilds this this place which is going to be the epicenter of home, the epicenter of God's presence. And then that idea of exile in the New Testament is how we understand our calling to be an ambassador. An ambassador is to be a citizen of one place, but live in another place, have, have all the authority of the other place, but be fluent in the language and culture of the place they find themselves. And their heart is always to represent where it is they come from. That is our divine destiny and calling, is to be an ambassador in the city of Sheffield. Believing that one day there is a heavenly city, a new Jerusalem, which we will all step into, Believing that right now in this city, at this time, there are two cities at work, folks. There is the city of Sheffield with all of its beauty. Did you know a third of the city of Sheffield is a national park? Of course you knew that, didn't you? I'm just really slow on the uptake. So we're called to live in it. We're called to, to, to make our home here, as it says in Jeremiah chapter 29. We're, we're called to go to school here. We're called to raise our kids here. But as citizens of another place, we believe there is another city here right now. That is the city of heaven, on earth as in heaven. Meaning that our calling is to bring life to the city. It means that, as I was talking to a guy earlier today, who's going to go and do his shift, four o'clock till two o'clock as a doctor. Actually, it's slightly outside of Sheffield. It's in Barnsley. But we're trusting the anointing is still going to stay with him. It means as a person who is a child of God, made in God's image... He carries the presence of God into the place of work. Meaning that he is bringing the rule and reign of God into that environment. As you will be, not tomorrow because it's a bank holiday, but some of you will be working. But on Tuesday, you have an assignment, a divine assignment from the Lord to be made in his image. That is our vocation, our calling, to step into the things of God for the sake of the city. And as a church, our heart is for the city. 
to bring life to it. And one of the ways that we've been talking about that is planting churches, sending people from here to other parts of the city with our love and our blessing. And we're not going to change our numbers. I mean, we're still going to keep in touch with these guys. But, but the heart, that's the heart behind it, to give away all that is that God has given us for the city, to bring blessing and life to where God is calling us. And so we're jumping into Nehemiah chapter 11. Now, just, just a couple of things I want to say before we read Nehemiah uh, chapter 11. Firstly, I really should have given this passage to somebody else. Okay, that's the first thing. So, so, so when I, I actually, we actually did, I actually worked this out in June, folks, last June. I mean, that is a miracle even in and of itself. It wasn't last week, but it was like, and, and at the time, I, I, re- I must have read through it and thought, this is good. Um, and then I thought, I probably read it through and thought, oh, I'll give that to somebody else. Um, but, it's, but it's fallen on me, folks. And, and, uh, and I described it at the nine o'clock a bit like this. Who remembers a telephone directory? Okay, okay, so we're going to do a seminar later for young people. I know there's students here. Okay, in the old days, there was no internet, folks. Can you believe it? And it's true. And tel- telephones were things which had wires that went into the wall. And um, you'd get a book. How they got it through the letterbox, I don't know. I never asked, never thought about it. A big book with a lot of names which was great because me and my mate Jimmy, because his dad had an office in his house, this was before working from home was a thing, folks, had a telephone with a hands-free button. I didn't know anybody who had a telephone with a hands-free button, but my mate Jimmy's dad did in his office, so it meant you could get the telephone directory. You could look for the name of your mate, unless they were ex-directory, in which case you couldn't, and then you could phone them up and you could pretend to say, you could do a funny voice, I love doing funny voices, and you could say, congratulations, you've won the lottery. <laughs> and you could see how long they'd stay on the line for before they put the phone down. Foolish your mates again mucking about. And, that's, and so that was the joy, folks, of a telephone direction. And when you read bits of this passage from Nehemiah, it's slightly, with minus the telephone numbers, it's a list of names. And so we're not going to go through the whole thing because you don't want to see a dyslexic guy struggling with English words, let alone these Hebrew. We, we don't want that. Um, we really don't. There are some great, great names here. Um, yes, I'm not even going to pronounce some of them. And you know, um, as, as I look through this um, list of names, and as I do, and I, I read some commentaries, there was, there was a moment... The first five verses that struck me, because essentially, Nehemiah chapter 11 is about the repatriation of people to Jerusalem. Yes, that's why you came to church today, folks, because that's what we all want to know about, isn't it? How do we repatriate people hundreds and hundreds of years ago back to Jerusalem? That is the burning question. That is going to make Sunday lunch go a lot easier. If you're a student here and you're looking for your free lunch, you can talk about the repatriation of God's people to Jerusalem. So I do think, oh, I wish I'd given it to somebody else. But then, and then it got me thinking. Because I thought, I wonder if there's something that this says to us today. Sheffield, 2022. So this is, this is let's read the scripture together. It says, the new residence of Jerusalem. Now the leaders of the people settled in Jerusalem. 
the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of every ten of them to live in Jerusalem. The holy city, while the remaining nine were to stay in their own towns. The people commended all who volunteered to live in Jerusalem. These are the provincial leaders who settled in Jerusalem. Now some Israelites, priests, Levites, temple servants, and descendants of Solomon's servants lived in the towns of Judah, each on their own property in various towns, while other people from both Judah and Benjamin lived in Jerusalem. And then he goes on to talk about the descendants of Judah, the descendants of Benjamin, talks about the the families connected to the priests, the Levites, those who become the gatekeepers, and then some further reflections for the remaining half of chapter 11. So I've got a reflection for us. Now, John Marsh, the wonderful John Marsh, spoke last week. I don't know if he's here. He did an amazing job. And if you're familiar with an American writer and speaker, John Mark Comer, we call John Marsh our very own John Marsh Comer. Okay, that didn't work, but that's fine. I'll just press on. And he did an amazing... I didn't understand it. I watched him online. I didn't understand his Labrador gag. That just went over my head. (laughs) Didn't make any sense at all to me. I thought they was trying too hard. I thought he was amazing. And he reminded us, did he not... Of the back, he took us back to the read to the ark of scripture. That at the very beginning of time, the very beginning of the Bible, we see that one of the, the covenant calling for us is that we are made in the image of God. In fact, the Greek word for that is icon, it's, it's that we, we not only are we made, but we, we, we represent Him. The, the Hebrew word is salem, we are made in His image. It's how we understand we've seen evidence of creativity. Already this morning in people who can sing, people who, can, um, who have got beautiful voices, um, from, from different people in different places, uh, we, there is creativity, there is ability to solve problems, there is the ability in our workplaces where maybe we exercise leadership over other people, maybe we're doing a job with our hands where we're creating stuff, we're making stuff. Maybe we are super smart with spreadsheets. All of the attributes of how we live and function as humans is tailed back to this notion that we are made in the image of God, which is quite remarkably beautiful and complicated all at the same time. So we are made in the image of God. And part of being made in the image of God is two responses to that, is that the creator has created us and our response is to give him worship in all that we do, that that he's made us in his image and part of the way that we are made is that we are hardwired to give worship. And if you think, I don't think that's true, I would encourage you to go to a football match. In fact, you don't need to go to a football match. You need just to stand at the right point of somewhere in the city when it's match day and there's a game going on. You can hear the singing. Like we are hard white. Look at people who love trains. I know you're here today, Duncan. I know you love it. Like look at people who they just, they love like engineering. They love the things that are made and they love the craftsmanship. Like we, we are wired to enjoy and to worship things. Like, you know, you, you walk out to the Peak District 
and you see the sun setting, you're like, wow. Wow. Isn't it beautiful? Like that awe and wonder that we experience and we feel, or, you, or, or on a clear night, and if you're, you're, you're in the countryside somewhere, and you look up in the skies, and you're just like, wow. The heavens declare the glory of God. Wow. That wow you feel, that I feel, is because we are made to appreciate We're made to love. We're made to cherish. We're designed to go, wow, Lord. It's beautiful. We're designed in everything that we do, in our in our work is our worship, in our the way that we live, the way that we function is to is to is to reflect him. There's a theologian by the name of Tom Wright, or N.T. Wright as he's sometimes known, and he describes this that we are angled mirrors. So we're made in his image and we are called to angle to reflect him. And yet not only are we called to reflect him in worship and of wonder in the way that we not only live our lives, but also as we come into his presence, we are called to steward, to take what it is that he has given us, to to love it, to care for it. That's why that we are passionate about the environment. That's why we do take seriously issues of climate change, because God has put us in a position where we need to steward and should steward and should be the champions of stewarding the very thing that God has given us. But we don't. Take the environment as an example. It's because of certain nations and policy decisions that, 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 the, that the earth is warming. That will have detrimental, devastating Effects in certain places, in certain parts of the world. It will affect us too. But it will be absolutely devastating for other places in the world. It will cause a crisis of migration because places will become too uninhabitable for people to live. It is vital that we act right now to begin to address these things. It is the sin in the human heart that prevents governments and systems from engaging with this on a serious level. So let's just for a moment, if we are created to, to, to reflect him, if we're created to steward well, if the, the vision of God's people is to be blessed, to be a blessing, and if the epicenter of that is a place called Jerusalem, then what is stopping that process? You see, for us to understand the word sin. Now, when I was, I grew up in an evangelical church, and I'm grateful for my inherit for, for my mom and dad for taking me to church, and I'm super grateful for my church. Absolutely. I was schooled in a way that evangelism went like this, and it was always spoken. You always had to talk about sin in any conversation. Fantastic to see you. Do you know? You've got a sin issue in your life. Do you want to come to church? Generally, people would say, uh, no. 
Or, or, or people would say, well, I find that hard to get my head around because I think I'm quite a good person. So I don't feel bad because bad is other people. Bad is people that you read about the internet. Bad is leaders with nuclear codes. Bad is the stuff I say. But I'm not bad. I'm okay. You see, the way that we can understand sin and brokenness is tracking back to how we understand that we're wired. We are wired, made in the image of God. So we are wired to worship him. We are wired to steward. We know that humans are not doing a great job of stewarding the environment. We know that. And we know that we have a propensity to worship. We just don't always worship God. Now, how do we end up not worshiping God? We end up worship when it's when good things become ultimate things. Somebody once said to me, actually fairly recently, said, when we talk about idolatry, that's the word that the Bible often uses for this, idolatry, idols. Now, when we think about idols, we often think of golden cows in the Old Testament. You know, like big cow, full of gold, big horns. I think that's an idol. And you might say, well, actually, I don't have any golden cows at home. There's no golden cows in my closets. There is no golden cows in my house. There's no golden cows in the garden. If there was, I'd melt it down and sell it. There's just no golden cows. I don't have an issue with idolatry. Because if we assume idolatry belongs to another time frame, and it's only the golden cow, we'll often think, well, I don't have an issue with idolatry. And you go, really? Are you for real? Are you serious? Because we're wired for worship. All of us worship. The question is, what is it that we're worshipping? Is it me or is the temperature dropped in this room? Is it me? Or should we start telling jokes? Hey. So what has that got to do anything with Nehemiah? So here's the thing, Nehemiah's heart is to the restoration of Jerusalem. The heart of Israel is to become a blessing to the nations. To give away what it is that God has given them. To be a blessing, to bring life in all of its fullness. To write at the heart to be a nation that is like no other nation. A nation that treats people with respect. A nation that after seven years... Gives, that leave, always leaves land for other people, a nation that practices tithing, a nation that is somehow different. At the heart of that nation is a city, a city, a beautiful city called Jerusalem, a holy city where God is present. And so Nehemiah has had this beautiful call from God to restore it. And one of the ways that he's restored it is he's put walls around it. What does that mean to anybody here? It means in the ancient time for a city to function as a city, it needed a wall. And the thing that Nehemiah could do for his part in the whole big picture was to make Jerusalem secure by building a wall. And that's what he does. 
And then we have, as John spoke beautifully last week, these covenantal courts come back to the heart of God. And then it's then what we get in chapter 11 is that, we, that Nehemiah is calling people to leave their homes to move into Jerusalem. Why to move into Jerusalem? Because Jerusalem is always going to be vulnerable to outside attacks unless it is full of people. Part of its calling is its restoration, is it's to become a life center, a place of blessing, a place where people go to. And so there is a calling for people to return. And what we see, there are two ways that Nehemiah does that. Firstly, he casts lots. How weird is that? So literally, it's like, I guess it's a bit like, do you remember Willy Wonka? Opens up his packet and he gets the golden ticket. It's literally like one in ten people get it. It's like, today, congratulations, you're moving to Jerusalem. But I live here, congratulations, you're moving to Jerusalem. Yeah, but I live over here, congratulations. And you're like, oh, fantastic, my neighbours, oh, they got the ticket, I haven't got the ticket. One in ten people do it. And then there are some people, the scripture says, who says, and there were people commended who volunteered to live in Jerusalem. So there are some people who are like, yeah, we'll go. We'll relocate. How much is it? Right move. Beautiful. We'll get a bit of money for that. Maybe they Airbnb. Who knows? But there are some people that make the decision to go to Jerusalem. And there are some people that make the decision not to go to Jerusalem. And this is the thing that I've been reflecting on this week. The 18th century uh, Bible expositor, a man called Matthew Henry, um, says that there are two types of people. There are those that return to Jerusalem. And you think that's the kind of That's like the quintessential, that's like the thing that the story of Scripture to this moment has been championing. It's the moment that they've been wanting. It's the moment that they've been all going for, to to see Jerusalem restored, for to see God's people become the full priesthood of believers, to see God's presence in the temple, to see it's like the thing that the whole story has been about. But yet, Matthew Henry says in his commentary, there are people that just don't want to go. Like you've got an option to live right next to God's presence. Wow. And they don't do it. And he says this. First group of people are like, no. They're comfortable. They make a decision. My life will be better if I stay in rural X. Because X is I've got my farm. I've got my business. I'm going to have to give that all up to go to Jerusalem. In fact, fact, to go to Jerusalem, you have to get another job. Well, I've been a vicar for nearly 20 years. I only work one day a week. What else am I going to do? What else am I going to do? De-skilled. What else am I going to do? It's the only thing I've known. 
Yeah, restoration, post-exile, yeah, we, but no. I, my life will be better if I stay here. And there are a second group of people that stay because of fear. Both, both heart attitudes are driven by a sense of fear. So, so, so one is um, uh, I, f- to live in Jerusalem is dangerous. It's easier for me to stay here because I can protect myself. The first one is about the closer you get to God, that somehow closer to his presence, life isn't going to be as good. Like God might get involved and spoil your plans. The second thing is around security, around will God really protect me? And yet the scriptures say clearly that God will protect his people in his place, Jerusalem. Tell a story. A couple of weeks ago, Clarissa and I went to Norfolk. Aha. When I said that at nine o'clock, somebody was cheering like mad. Actually, she wasn't cheering like mad. She was just like, hey, Norfolk. And as I was walking our dog, a Labrador, if you're interested, John, watching, very good. I just had a moment of thinking, God, it'd be nice living here, wouldn't it? I could, um, by the sea, and uh, I just thought, uh, I, I was walking past a little village we stayed by the, and I, I looked at the, I looked at the note, the church notice board, and I thought, wow, they'd do about one service every six weeks, it'd be great here. <laughs> be amazing. I mean, you've got about 93 churches, right, but I mean, you only do, you know, you're, you're just driving around in your Land Rover Defender, that'd be lovely, wouldn't it? And... Um, you go and do a bit of communion. I thought, wow, it would be a great life. And I, and, for, and I don't know why I thought this, but I thought I could paddleboard in the afternoon. I've never been paddleboarding in my life. <laughs> I've never, ever done paddleboarding. For some reason, I think it looks awesome. But I suspect, did you hear about Boris Johnson when he went paddleboarding in Scotland? He went further and further and further out to sea. They, had to get, they were going to contemplate whether to get some seeking helicopters. I would be the same. I think I'd just end up at the Isle of Man or something. Do you know what I mean? And I was thinking, I could... It'd be great, we could... I mean, I don't know where the kids were, actually, Clarissa, in, my, in, in that thinking. I've just got to confess that right now. But um, maybe they were paddleboarding, too. But I just said, wouldn't it be great? You could go paddleboarding. And, and my mind started to... to it started to, to wonder, folks. It started to... It started to think of places. And, and, and it reminded me of a time, I think, when we were in Cornwall on holiday. And I was just walking, I was thinking, wow, I love being by the sea. I mean, I'm from Birmingham. There is not a lot of sea for... There's canals... But there's not a lot of sea. And I remember thinking, wow, it'd be great, wouldn't it, live by the sea? And, um, and then I remember saying to Chris, actually, Joe, we could, we could live on an island. We, well, Jersey would be nice, wouldn't it? A little bit of French, but not too much because they don't speak it. But that would be lovely. Wouldn't it be lovely to live on an island and live by the sea? And That'd be amazing. Sometimes on a bad day, folks, I look at my weather app is it BBC or Meteo Group, whatever it is, whatever. And I look and I think, Charleston, now Chris, I think, 29 degrees in Charleston, South Carolina, beautiful. San Diego, we could li- It's rubbish, folks. It's crazy. Often, 
it's driven by a sense of stress. I mean, I only work one day a week. I mean, you guys work proper jobs full-time. I mean, how you do it, I don't know. I need to rest. I need to lie down for at least four days. But it's really settled in a heart of fear. And so what for me is, and this is like therapy, thank you for listening. What, what, happens, is, what happens is my mind begins to wander and where it lands is comfort. It, 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 it's a moving away from difficult circumstances, thinking, well, a life on the North Norfolk coast <laughs> would be a change of everything. Of course, it wouldn't. Archbishop William Temple says this, that, that religion is what you do with your solitude. And Timothy Keller, quoting that, says this, things that we daydream about most readily when nothing else is occupying us reveals what we live for and serve. I dropped the mic, but they cost a lot of money, and I'll get feedback. So I reread the beginning of Nehemiah chapter 11. And here's this amazing, beautiful moment where the restoration of Israel and Jerusalem is happening. The walls are built, the gatekeepers called, the priests are there, the, the, the people are moving in, the, the removal vans are outside. That bit, I'm joking, before you write me a letter, I know there weren't removal vans there, it was a comedic joke to lighten the atmosphere. Any other people who don't want to go? Don't want to step into the calling, the blessed to be a blessing. Partly to reflect his image, which is to give away what we have. The mission or call to be a light, a beacon. And often it is rooted, certainly for me, in my own heart and life it's rooted in a lie Alexei Navalny Chris and I are watching a documentary on, on um, BBC iPlay at the moment he is the, the opposition leader to Vladimir Putin who's currently in prison a remarkable man of phenomenal courage um, uh, one CNN commentator said he's got the, he's the craziest job in the world to take on the president of the Russian Federation. And he said this, he said, for Putin's war to work in Ukraine, it started with a lie. The lie, folks, that I can buy is that somehow my life should be better than it is. That somehow I'm owed a better life. That somehow... If I change my circumstances, life will get somehow better, moving to the North Norfolk coast. That somehow if I pursue comforts over the reality of the situation, that somehow life will get better. And it's a lie. So back to Norfolk, we're walking, I'm walking on this beautiful path, and I begin to think, whether it's the Holy Spirit, that sounds incredibly spiritual, it might not be. But there's a sense of you can choose me or you can choose comfort. But you know, you can't get both. Let's not say he's the God of all comfort. But you can choose comfort. You can manufacture comfort for yourself. 
You can try and engineer your circumstances. You can walk in a sense of idolatry, and that is sin, folks. I don't want to just you know, pee on the parade here right now, but that's understanding the scriptural, trying to create it for myself. Or I can trust and walk in his ways. I can believe the lie that somehow the marriage should be more perfect than it is. Grace, it is wonderful. You're amazing. My children should be more perfect than they are. That my job should be X or my life will be better if it was X or my marriage would be better if it was X or my marriage or whatever, whatever, this situation would be better if it was this or that, whatever it can be. The situations that we can find ourselves in. And yet into the midst is the call of Nehemiah encouraging the people of God to embrace the city of God walking in their anointing to bring the rescue of God. And we too have that same call and that same challenge. Because the call for the people of God is to step into sacrifice. And a heart for comfort will always resist a call to sacrifice. Bill Johnson, I know that some people don't like Bethel anymore. I still do, folks. We're part of a global church, and um, this is what he says. We're called to go beyond the reach of comfort into the realm of sacrifice. That's where kingdom discoveries are made. And I don't know about you folks today, whether your heart is drawn to the things, like all of us, that are comforting, and soothing, he of course is the God of all comfort. He can dish it out in spades, the personal work of Jesus. But whether you're called to try and build comfort at the moment, whether you're feeling that you're distant from the Lord, and whether today there's something perhaps the Holy Spirit is saying, come back to me, come back to me. I've chats with the Lord all the time, say, Lord, you got me into this. You never mentioned a pandemic. You called me into this leadership stuff. You never mentioned a bath. It was going to be a bit different. It's like, well, you're going to trust me. How about you? Should we stand, folks?